0: Greetings dysfunctionals. Once again, it is us. I am Ernesto Morales. And I'm Alex Yanish. And today we're talking with Ernesto Vigil. Ernesto is the author of the Crusade for Justice, Chicano Militancy, and the Government's War on Descent. I first met Ernesto back in 1996 or 97 when I was organizing the 1997 National Metro Conference at Michigan State University. It was interesting to have Vigil there as he helped us process and contextualize the massive disruption that was perpetrated by reactionary Chicanos, mostly from California. Ernesto was a key leader in the
1: Denver-based crusade for justice, which is widely recognized as one of the big four organizations of the Chicano power era. The man specializes in Federal Bureau of Investigations document literacy and Freedom of Information Act requests. His mission is transparency and justice for the people, proven again when he penned one of the most thorough and densely researched works on the Chicana, Chicano, Chicanex movement. Any book worth of shit about Chicano power movements takes heavily from his research. He is currently in negotiations to publish a book on the FBI campaign to disrupt, delegitimize, silence, and murder the members of the American Indian movement. This will be the earth-shattering information for anyone interested in social movements and the
0: recent histories of indigenous, indigenous radicals. In addition to his own personal contributions on the front lines of Chicano organizing and liberation for the past 50 years... One of the most notable being that he was the first Chicano in the in the Southwest to refuse induction into the Army during the Vietnam War. Ernesto is also one of, if not the foremost, expert on government surveillance of indigenous movements in the United States. So let's get to the conversation. Ernesto, how are you doing?
2: Well, I'm doing fine.
0: Good. All right. So you're working on a whole bunch of stuff right now. Where would you like to start talking
2: Well, the main project right now is finishing up the revisions to a manuscript on which I've been working for 11 calendar years. And the data traces back all the way to the mid-1970s. So it is going to be an interesting work because it covers three to four decades. A number of the people in the narrative are well-known activists at the same time. There are very obscure activists who played major roles in some controversies. And my focus is on those particular things that have happened that have been poorly misinterpreted. And some events have been subject to prolonged campaigns involving deceit and propaganda. The working title for the manuscript is Decades of Deception, the American Indian Movement, the FBI, and the Death of Anime Aquash." So uh, I'm working on the final revisions. I hope to turn that in soon, which then puts me in the position to push for a publication date. So that is the description of the manuscript Uh, in general, and uh, we can get into any of the specifics uh, that might be of interest.
0: So, um, I have a couple of questions based on what you just said, but how close to completing this manuscript are you?
2: Oh, I have to uh, polish up the introduction. Uh, I don't have formal conclusions. The manuscript right now is 11 narrative chapters plus the introduction that I have to polish up. There's one chapter six, where I have to uh, explore the whole issue of propaganda. Uh, The public is always propagandized, but in the particular instance of the events I look into, there has been a very conscious effort to distort the historical record. So the chapter that starts, Chapter 1, all the way to Chapter 11, plus the uh, conclusions, the addendum, that I'm going to add, uh, is going to make for a book about 360 pages. Uh, it is similar in length to the Crusade for Justice book, The Crusade for Justice book is about 366 pages of narrative and 774 source notes. The Crusade book had the most citations of FBI documents of any book written on the Chicano movement, 774 source notes. This manuscript, at last count, has over 1,400 source notes, They rely heavily on government documents, including FBI documents, including documents from the Denver Police Department Intelligence Bureau. Uh, I was able to get my hands on the discovery material from two different homicide trials that took place in 2004 and 2010. So the book starts in the 1970s and concludes in 2010. So it's not a nostalgia piece about the movement era of the 60s and 70s. It follows what the FBI has done over the decades since 1975 to the present. And the most controversial part of the book will be my examination of three homicide trials in which the FBI knew since 1975 the identity of three alleged culprits in a 1975 murder. Yet the FBI waited over 27 years to make the first arrest. And the findings of the data will show that the federal government was putting people on the stand knowing that their testimony was not reliable. Two particular parties were put on as cooperating witnesses, and my personal opinion is that to call them a cooperating witness is to use a euphemism. Both parties, in my personal opinion, were accomplices to the homicide, knew that they were accomplices, and were afraid that unless they gave the testimony the government wanted to hear, that they themselves were in jeopardy of indictments. So uh, since these are recent events, the trials in 2010, this again is not a nostalgia piece about the movement era of the 60s and 70s. This shows an ongoing operation that has endured for decades to the present.
0: You know, one of the things that you, had, you just said a second ago is you were talking about how the public is always propagandized. And so my question to you would be what or why do you think that the FBI has such an intense, ongoing interest in disrupting American Indian movement or indigenous movements in the United States?
2: In this particular instance, the FBI as an institution, is going to be put in a position where, as an institution, they're going to be confronted with documents that came right out of their own file. The FBI in 1975 was in the middle of the biggest dragnet in over four decades because in 1975, two FBI agents had been killed on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Now, in that particular matter, uh, a number of things happened after the deaths of the two FBI agents on June 26, 1975. And having had two FBI agents killed, This extreme interest in locating, arresting, and prosecuting the people involved in this shooting incident was so important to the FBI that here in the Denver area, uh, one particular person had fled a court appearance on November 24th, 1975, and the very next day, November 25th, 1975, that fugitive, Anime Aquash, fled South Dakota and arrived in Denver. I saw her on the morning uh, of November 25th. Uh, there were two subsequent meetings, and at some point thereafter, Maybe within one week to two weeks, Anime Aquash was taken from Denver, Colorado, from a location about four blocks from where we are now sitting, and she was killed on the Pine Ridge Reservation. The documentation I have shows that the FBI knew the names of three alleged culprits. All of them were members of the American Indian Movement in Colorado. The motive for her killing was that rumors had been spread that Anime Akwash was an informer. The FBI knew at some point between December 13th and December 19th, 1975, that Anime Akwash had been murdered. The information came from an informer in the Denver area. Uh, who told the FBI at the latest, December 19, 1975, that she'd been killed, who did it, and what the motive was. The FBI made no arrest for 27 years. When they made the arrest in 2003, it resulted in the first conviction uh, for homicide in three subsequent trials. There was one acquittal. But among the fascinating things I discovered was that though the FBI knew since December 1975 who allegedly killed Anime Aquash, between 1982 and 1984, the FBI was feeding information to federal prosecutors in South Dakota that there was only one suspect in the rape and murder of Anime Aquash, And the man that they were seeking to indict was a Denver activist, very well-known, who had nothing whatsoever to do with the homicide. Yet I have the documents showing that in 1984, the federal prosecutor in South Dakota had convened a grand jury investigation for they were seeking to indict somebody that the FBI knew was not responsible for the murder at all. Why does the FBI have such uh, investment in this particular case is a very interesting question. Another interesting question is why of the three alleged suspects, only two were tried and the ringleader, was never arrested nor indicted at all, and died from natural causes in 2011. I think by the time a reader finishes the narrative that I've written, all logic will indicate that the FBI did not want to prosecute the ringleader because all indications are The ringleader was an informant for the FBI.
0: So do you think that the the murder of Anime Aquash was then like an assassination on the part of the FBI? I mean, was she somebody that they were trying to get rid of? Or is it just something that happened and then they realized that their people, their informants were caught up in it, and then they just covered it up?
2: In the narrative, I name names and I cite the documents. Okay there are certain gaps in the information where in the absence of hard data, a person has to make their conclusions based on the entire context and the data that is available. So what I'm going to express now is my opinion. Uh, It's my opinion that the ringleader and she's identified in the uh, documents and in the manuscript. Her name is Theta Nelson, uh, also known as Theta Clark. She was not a popular woman. A lot of people in the local American Indian community stayed away from her. She had a very unpleasant personality. It is my impression that Theta Clark's role was to create internal conflict, to spread rumors, to create division in hopes that the activists within the American Indian Movement would come into conflict with each other through the spreading of rumors. I do not believe that she was given an order to participate in the murder. Her job was just to create the rumors. What happens, however, in the practice of using informers to carry out these type of operations, the informer himself is not going to be a person of good character. This woman, uh, according to what members of her family tell me, had been put in the state hospital in Pueblo, Colorado, on at least two different occasions. So she was also mentally unstable, probably motivated by greed, but she had a malevolent personality. So it's my opinion that she not only spread the rumors and provoked conflict, she had been working for a period of time for the FBI, and it appears to me that given her personality traits, she crossed the line and went beyond what they expected her to do, and then personally took part in the homicide. She drove the vehicle where anime Aquash was taken from Denver to Pine Ridge. She transported the gun, And according to the testimony in three different trials, when Aquash was killed, Theda Nelson, Theda Clark, passed over the weapon and gave the order to shoot and kill enemy Aquash. What the records do show is that there was no press conference by the federal authorities to explain why they didn't indict her. The only indication is found in motions submitted by defense attorneys in the procedures before the actual trial. In one document by a defense attorney, the defense attorney for Richard Marshall points out that the ringleader had never been arrested nor indicted. and then goes on to say that the prosecution had informed the defense attorney that the ringleader was not going to be indicted for humanitarian reasons. The humanitarian reason, according to the defense attorney, was that Theda Nelson, also known as Theda Clark, was in the early stages of dementia caused by Alzheimer's. And for that reason, for that humanitarian reason, the FBI decided not to prosecute her.
0: And this was 27 years later, or it was a number of years later that you're talking about?
2: The defense motion I'm talking about it was filed in 2009, I believe. And in it, that is the reason that he points out to the judge that the ringleader was not prosecuted due to humanitarian reasons, given her dementia. In the second trial the defense attorney for Richard Marshall went before the judge and told the judge that the defense attorney had discovered the Denver Police Department Intelligence Bureau, had copies of interviews, had various kinds of evidence that it held as copies in Denver, and the main copies were in the possession of the federal government that allegedly and without any explanation, somehow lost these documents. The Denver Police Department is then asked to provide copies, and then the Denver Police Department they declare that they had inadvertently destroyed evidence in 2003. It turned out that there were at least 17 to 19 audio tapes and videotapes that were lost by the federal authorities and then inadvertently destroyed by the Denver police until amazingly they discover a third batch of copies in the police department basement. So there's all kinds of questions that these facts raise. However, when Richard Marshall's attorney explained that six years had gone by and nobody had ever advised the defense that evidence in their clients' cases had been lost. The defense attorney was never told. So Richard Marshall ends up winning his case. He was accused of having passed the weapon to one of the alleged culprits who killed Anna Aquash. Richard Marshall's attorney filed an additional motion, an additional motion requesting that Theta Nelson's medical records be reviewed by competent personnel and that they readminister tests to her to see if in fact she was suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. Her medical records gave no indication at all of Alzheimer's. And when she was re-examined by medical personnel, she was found to be fully mentally competent. She was subpoenaed to testify. She twice pled the Fifth Amendment and was allowed to walk off. Never gave testimony. Never was arrested. Never was indicted. And whatever she knew, I am positive, is on reports in the possession of the FBI to this day. Getting them to release those documents is a whole different question. So it's my analysis that the FBI had used the analysis to create conflict and dissent didn't know or didn't care that she was of a a malevolent character and then went overboard and participated in the murder which then created a major problem with the FBI. How could they indict two other suspects when the ringleader got away free and that it was a complete invention of the federal authorities to claim she had Alzheimer's when physical examination showed that, in fact, was not the case. This is a cover up. It's not a mystery, it's a cover up. The identities of the culprits were known. The motive was established way back in December 1975. The federal prosecutors have announced there will be no further prosecutions in the death of Anime Aquash, And there is a related homicide from 1973 that took place at Wounded Knee, South Dakota that has been swept under the rug. It is the uh, death and disappearance of an African-American activist named Perry Ray Robinson. Uh, that homicide will not be investigated any further at all. Even though the people present when Perry Ray Robinson was shot and bled to death in, I believe, April 1973, will not be investigated at all, though the FBI has the names of several people that were present when he was shot, and therefore knew who shot him. And Perry Ray Robinson bled to death. And in the United States, there is no statute of limitations on a homicide. The FBI knows who shot him. And the FBI has their own motive for not wanting to see a prosecution in that particular case. What, what kind of motive do you think that, that could be? One reason that I chose the title, Decades of Deception, is because these matters have been the subject of government deception for decades. The practices of the FBI and other law enforcement bodies always rely on informers, and again, The average informer is not gonna be a person of outstanding character. But more than that, informers always have their own personal agenda. They are either working for reward or they're working to avoid punishment by law enforcement. So they have something in their background for which they do not want to be held responsible But for them to get off the hook, they have to please the law enforcement agency for whom they are working. So they will tell their handler the story the handler wants to hear. A lot of times what the informer says is what the handler has let the informer know, that the handler wants to hear. So in this particular case, I have instances in the the manuscript where one person is wearing a covert recording device because that person is an FBI informer talking to yet another informer who's telling lies of their own for their own personal interest. So literally, I have one informer trying to entrap another informer and both these informers are liars. But this is the nature of investigative procedures by the FBI and law enforcement. And so we end up in dilemmas like this, where a woman who goes overboard and orders another person killed, spreads rumors about that person, and then dies of old age because the FBI was too embarrassed to say, oh, our informer became an active participant in a murder, which does not make the FBI look good at all because there are certain forms of activity involving informers that is illegal. That would be a felony. And there is case law, both state and federal, that in the commission of a felony, if a person loses their life, everyone involved in that felony can not only be charged for the initial crime, they are now also susceptible to being charged with murder. To give a simple example, if you and I break into a filling station at night because we want to steal tires, and the filling station owner happens to drive by and see us in his filling station. And if he parks a car, he runs up to us, has a heart attack and falls dead at our feet, even though we didn't touch him at all. He died in the commission of our felony. And we are not only susceptible to arrest for the burglary, we are now susceptible to be charged with homicide because the man died. In the context that I am discussing about Theda Nelson, everybody that knew of her involvement would be very embarrassed because her involvement working on behalf of the FBI led to the death of an innocent person. And everybody who knows about that death, including the informer's handler and the people above the handler and the people in FBI headquarters, everybody who participated in the cover up could also face murder charges to this day because there is no statute of limitations on a murder.
0: That's explosive. Wow. Okay, so one of the things that you said a little while ago was that there was a Denver activist that was implicated in that. I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that and why that may be or why that sort of implication. And also too, I think it probably has a little bit to do with the relationship that the Crusade for Justice had with the American Indian Movement. And if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about that too. Uh,
2: The Crusade for Justice... uh had an alliance, an informal alliance, uh, with a local chapter of the American Indian Movement here in Denver. The first American Indian Movement chapter in Denver was formed in 1970, and then that chapter collapsed in 1976. During the height of the occupation of the village of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation South Dakota in 1973, the people at Wounded Knee were surrounded by several hundred U.S. Marshals, FBI uh, agents, uh, and even military officials uh, for 71 days of that occupation. By the first week of the occupation at Wounded Knee, federal authorities had provided military equipment to the domestic law enforcement uh, at Wounded Knee at that time. Now, when it was apparent to us that the people at Wounded Knee were completely surrounded by law enforcement with military equipment, we feared that there might be a a massacre at Wounded Knee. We met with the people at the local office of the American Indian Movement in Denver, and we proposed to them that we staged a series of protests as far and wide as we could to demonstrate to the federal government that the support for the people at Wounded Knee was massive and not confined to Wounded Knee but existed throughout the country. That if we could demonstrate that solidarity that it would hopefully put pressure on the federal government so that they would not launch an attack. On March 6, 1973, the Crusade for Justice in Denver, along with the Denver chapter of the American Indian Movement, staged the largest solidarity rally on behalf of the people at Wounded Knee. It was the largest protest in the nation But we also coordinated uh, with Puerto Rican allies in New York City who held a demonstration in front of the United Nations, with Chicano activists in Los Angeles, California, who had a protest in downtown LA, and two demonstrations in Santa Fe, New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we were told that Mexican students in Mexico City demonstrated in front of the U.S. Embassy on the same day. That began a very active working relationship with different elements of the American Indian Movement thereafter. So, ironically, though the narrative of the book primarily focuses on American Indian activists. At the very culmination of the book, when I poke into the discovery material on these three homicide cases, is when I discover that in 1982 to 1984, the FBI conducted several interviews, including an interview with Theta Nelson, About the death of Anime Aquash. At the end of that two year period in 1984, a federal grand jury is convened, and the sole suspect in the rape and murder of Anime Aquash is a well known local person who's well known regionally. The FBI was hoping to have Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez indicted on the rape and murder of Anime Aquash, knowing all along that Gonzalez had nothing to do with it whatsoever. A mistake that the federal authorities made in their arrogance is that they put people on the stand to allege that Rodolfo Corky, Gonzalez, and I participated in a meeting with American Indian movements where we gave the instruction to them that if they had informers in their organization, that they should kill that informer. It's a complete lie. And it angered me to the point that the FBI is going to regret that they ever had the nerve to pull off the frame-up of Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez, and when they drag my name into it, they will come to regret that day, and that day will be the publication date of this book.
0: Your first book, Heavily researched, primarily based on your own experiences and the FBI documents that you um, that that you were able to gather. I guess uh, you know one of the things that that you and I talk about uh, quite frequently is um, why this type of research is important for Chicano studies or the Chicano movement. Now, I just was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that because what you're doing the type of research that you're doing is um, it's, it's not, it's not run of the mill. Right. And it, particularly in Chicano studies circles, I mean, people just don't, uh, they don't, they don't really try to interact with FBI documents, but you've built a career around that. Did you want to say something else? I,
1: I think also I'd really like to hear you were talking earlier about the nostalgic narrative of the sixties, seventies and eighties with the Chicano power movements. And uh, I think, I'd I'd really just love to hear your opinion, what that means today. Like, how is this going to challenge that narrative? And I think that plays right into your question. Yeah.
2: Having been an activist since my 20th birthday, and I'm, I'm now 71, I've been concerned about social justice and the struggle to attain social justice for five decades that means that i have to look at how this society functions and to understand how society functions anywhere we have to examine who has power and who is deprived of power because those who hold power determine what happens those who have no power have to live with the world that the powerful have created the use of their power certain power operates publicly the president will get up somebody in congress will get up the supreme court will make a ruling and those actions take place publicly what the public does not understand and what is increasingly hidden from us is how power works covertly how they hide What they do. This particular narrative. Cites a lot of the public media. And what they project. The case and events to be. Which is an illusion. They are working with the information. Presented to them. By official people in power. The documents that I get my hands on show what has gone on behind the scene, what's gone on behind the curtains, what's gone on to cover up the part of the truth that does not reflect well on what those with power have done. In this case, what the government has done and have records of that they will not release. The dilemma that the FBI confronts is that they are a very rigid bureaucracy. It's a traditional authoritarian pyramid where all the information, all the power, all the decision-making rests at the top. The lower levels feed information upwards, the information is analyzed, the decision is made and passed downwards in a very rigid and bureaucratic structure where every document is supposed to be identified dated and filed, it's now known that the FBI had special procedures for certain documents that would reflect badly on the FBI, that would reveal FBI crimes, and they have a need to communicate effectively, but they also have the need to make sure that certain documents are never released to the public. Anima Aquash is shown in a document of April 1976 that shows the Denver FBI field office had an informer who told them all they needed to know to make immediate arrests and have immediate prosecutions except that the ringleader was their informer who participated in a murder. There's no way that once that information was known to the local field office, there's no way that it was not immediately submitted to FBI headquarters and decisions were made very quickly. And when the body was found approximately February 23rd or February 24th, of 1976, the FBI knew exactly who the cadaver was. Instead, they sever her hands from the body on the pretext that the body cannot be recognized and they send the hands to headquarters to have the fingerprints taken and the identity revealed. They knew all along that the dead person was Anime Aquash and they refused to reveal it until around March the 6th of 1976. They knew who the body was when they found it.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, a point you were making earlier, Ernesto, you were talking about uh, the nostalgic narrative of the 60s, 70s and 80s of the specifically Chicano power movement. And I'd really like to hear your opinion on how this research and the research you've done before um, is going to affect the the way we talk about these things. It seems that there's really almost romanticization that's happening. Um, And and I'd really like to hear what do you think is going to happen with this work after it's published?
2: Well, one motive in writing it um, goes to what you mentioned, that there is a tendency by far too many people to look back at the previous era of activism in the 60s and 70s and to exalt that era as an important era and engage in nostalgia about the good old days. The problems that we confronted in the 60s and 70s are worse today than they were then. There's nothing to be nostalgia, uh, to be nostalgic about. We need to look at the reality, the social reality that we confront, and see it the way it is, and describe it the way it is. I have no time, and I have no interest in nostalgia. The problems of that era exist to this day, and we have to look at things coldly, analytically, and express the truth very bluntly. One of my concerns within the academic field is that it was a social struggle for low income people and people of color to have access to higher education that we've been deprived of due to poverty and our social standing. Those are serious issues. There's nothing to be nostalgic about. Those problems confront us today. The only reason to look at the previous history is to understand it for what it was, to learn what worked, to find out what didn't work, and to take the struggle forward again. So It takes discipline. There's little reward in doing this type of work. Academics stay away from using the Freedom of Information Act because if you file a request to get government documents, it may take two to five to six years to get your material delivered. I can understand how an academic has to plan his or her courses, and they cannot wait for an intangible date when they may or may not get the data. That does not mean that the data should be forgotten. Somebody has to go after it. Activists so far haven't been doing it. Moreover, many of the academic people in our community get caught up in the abstractions of the intellectual world and they do not deal with the concrete problems of the people who struggled to open up the program possibilities, employment, new courses, all the things that have been demanded by low income communities in terms of educational reform have not been met with success. So we need to renew that struggle, and we have to deal with the inequalities that we see around us daily. We can go to the richest neighborhoods of any city in this country and find homeless people in the alleys, in the gutters, on the corners, and the problem is getting worse eventually it's leading to a crisis that's going to be resolved through conflict whether people like it or not the academics that i criticize are those who are more concerned with their own tenure their own job security and their own prestige meanwhile The conditions remain where in the Mexican communities of this country, the majority of our young people do not even graduate high school. So our academics need to confront those realities and provide leadership that in my opinion at this point is lacking. The Freedom of Information Act that I use primarily focuses on getting FBI files on activist groups from the 60s, 70s, and to the present. Again, these documents will show how power functions undercover because the reality of that power is as tangible as anything else. It's not abstract. How power works creates the conditions in which we live, and these are conditions that we have to change.
1: Wow, you're a real patient man. Sounds like an anti-authoritarian is the reason (laughs) you're doing this, you
2: know?
1: Not
2: for the many. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So- Oh, oh, go
1: ahead. Well, so I'm hearing you talk about the FOIA document as a a way to put the power into the people's hands. And a a big thing that's happening in the news right now, Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks guy, um, I'd love to hear your opinion. You know, it sounds like someone working in the same field in a way that's not uh, academic, but trying to put these things into the power, to the hands of the people. There's things about him, but that seems like his goal, right? Here in 2019, what, what is your advice to us for digging into these things and addressing this uh, hierarchical nature of these things?
2: Well, we have to continue the quest for the truth, no matter where it takes us in my experience in working with the type of material that I work with, that the public, if it knows what's going on behind the scenes, if the public is informed, though I become increasingly cynical the older I get, I have a fundamental faith in the decency of human nature. If people have access to the information they need to make important decisions i have faith in the people to make the right decisions Mm, but it requires that they have the information to inform the decision they make the power that i see that we have in this society is not the power given to us by the way the system functions. It's the power that comes into our hands when the people are aware and are organized. Because without organization, our numbers cannot exert the inherent power that we have. I point out that the society is divided by class, is divided by race, is divided by, a variety of things that keep society segmented into the powerful and the powerless. It's my assertion that if we have the information we need to guide our actions as a unified, collective group of people, that is the only power we have to change the conditions we find around us.
0: I know that you also have some um, information uh, about the Peltier case and that you're aware that Leonard Peltier, uh, who is an important figure in the American Indian movement, has been incarcerated since 1976 despite efforts to secure his release from prison. Um, He has not been released. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that case.
2: The case of Leonard Paltier involves the killing of two FBI agents on June 26, 1975, near a small settlement on the Pine Ridge Reservation known as Oglala. He's uh, been the subject of a movie and of a documentary involving Robert Redford and um, Oliver, the filmmaker, Oliver Storm. Stone. Now, Paltier was given two life sentences, consecutive life sentences, his two uh, co-defendants the previous year on the same evidence were acquitted. Paltier was arrested later, tried separately and given two life sentences on the same evidence that his co-defendants had been acquitted upon. Leonard Paltier fled to Canada, was arrested there and the United States government submitted false affidavits from a woman who was later judged to be mentally incompetent. The woman claimed she was present at the site where the agents were killed and identified Leonard Paltier. She gave three different statements, each one of them in conflict with the other, with the other. And the prosecutor himself later on went to say the woman was not there and was completely mentally incompetent to have drawn up those statements taken by the FBI. That's what got him extradited to the United States, tried convicted and sentenced to two life sentences. In 1990, uh, the Leonard Paltiro Defense Committee, got two new members. Uh, and with time, the Leonard Poucher Defense Committee was infiltrated. And the narrative of the book gives various examples of what had happened. In 1994, 1995, A new member joined the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee. The man's name was Walter Leon Hill. Uh, He joined in 1994, 1995, uh, and then he abruptly left the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee in 1976 or 1977 because somebody looked into his background and discovered that Walter Leon Hill from 1985 to 1990, was a district court prosecutor in San Diego County. He left his employment as a prosecutor, went into private practice in 1990, 1991, and he formed a private security business called Verloc Group Incorporated, V-E-R-L-O-C. Verloc is a fictional character in an English novel in the late 1800s. The fictional character Verloc was an agent provocateur in England. Hmm. So the attorney who forms a group, Verloc Group Incorporated, incorporated in California and there were three founders, Walter Leon Hill, and his two co-founders were recent retirees from the CIA. This is 1991. 1994, Walter Leon Hill gets on the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee till they find out about his background. Part of his background was that from 1981 to 1983, Walter Leon Hill was with the Office of Naval Intelligence. So it's clear to me that the Leonard Paltiro Defense Committee itself has been penetrated by government agents. Walter Leon Hill had moved from California in late 1994 to Boulder, Colorado. He set up law practice there in Boulder, Colorado. He ran for office for the county commissioners while he is on the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee until his background is discovered. Uh, He's a very interesting person. He was a child prodigy. He is taking college classes when he's 14 years old. He gets his bachelor's degree uh, at Michigan State University in uh, the 1980s uh, and then decides to move to Boulder, Colorado. So he has a very interesting background, but he is a bona fide government agent who had been on the Leonard Peltier Defense Committee. By 1999, he is still active in Boulder, Colorado, and he holds press conferences with people like Russell Means, former leader of the American Indian Movement. So it's very strange to me that a man known to be a government agent who left the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee, maintains a working relationship with Russell Means for at least two to three additional years when his identity is known. By 2002, because he himself, Walter Leon Hill, because he himself was mentally unstable, there was a reported incident to the Boulder Police Department of domestic violence where Walter Leon Hill, who was a trained martial artist, in addition to being an attorney, pulls a gun on his wife in a domestic dispute. By the time the police respond, they find him outside his house crying. He admitted that he did threaten his wife and he told the police officers where the gun was. By 2002, he had also been disbarred. Walter Leon Hill was living at home with his mother. When he's arrested, he was forbidden to see his wife. They were not supposed to communicate with each other. He was put on a bond that forbid him to have weapons and firearms. He was arrested in late 2002 For violating those orders, he was found in possession of additional weapons and he fled Colorado in 2003 uh, and was facing over a dozen charges, about three or four of which were felonies. He has not been arrested to this date. Everybody in the United States, if they want to work, they want to travel, they want to get on an airplane to fly somewhere, has to have proof of identification. Walter Leon Hill has survived to the present and has not been arrested. It's my assumption that he used his intelligence connections and his intelligence training and that uh, he is alive and well and up to mischief somewhere in the world as we speak. So the Paltier Defense Committee itself had been infiltrated beginning in 1990. Again, Walter Leon Hill only joined in 1994 and 1995. So I don't want to get into the other complexities of the infiltration of the Paltier Defense Committee other than to say, It happened, and people who were involved in disrupting his defense efforts are still active to the present. Uh, In 1993, Leonard Paltier, through his attorneys, had lost his last appeal to the Supreme Court for a new trial or for the uh, vacating of his previous sentence. In 1993, his only option for freedom was through presidential clemency. And he launched an effort in hopes that Bill Clinton uh, would sign an order giving Paltier presidential clemency. That campaign of 1993 to 1994 was again disrupted. And that particular disruption is detailed with names, dates, personalities, and the outcome. The outcome was that his first campaign for president clemency was sabotaged. Leonard Paltier, when he found out that members of his committee were disrupting his clemency efforts, told certain people that he had to get off his legal defense committee. The specific person who angered Leonard Paltier to the point that Paltier demanded that he leave the legal defense committee was former Colorado professor Ward Churchill. Uh, Churchill left the Leonard Paltier defense committee in the summer of 1994 And by that fall, one of Churchill's associates on the Leonard Paltier Defense Committee recruited Walter Leon Hill. Mm -hmm. So Churchill was gone and now we have a veteran of the Office of Naval Intelligence on Leonard Paltier's Defense Committee. So there's a lot of complexities to his case. Uh, I have been told by somebody uh, in a position to know that the only remaining chance that Leonard Paltier has for a new trial for freedom is proof that his legal defense efforts have been sabotaged by the government and have violated attorney-client privilege. It's either that particular legal issue or the introduction of new evidence that would provide Leonard Paltier with sufficient grounds to hope for a new trial
0: wow and you talk about all this in the book that's coming out
2: everything we're discussing now yeah is in the manuscript in great detail with (laughs) 1400 source
0: (laughs) okay all right that's good that's good yeah i have one more question
1: um i don't i don't know if you mind going back to this but um you know, I, I uh, commented earlier, Julian Assange and also Chelsea Manning right now are facing intense. And Snowden. And Snowden, you know, uh, to the point that these people can't live their lives in any sort of way, uh, you know, being pulled out of the countries that they were uh, uh, seeking asylum in. Uh, you know, Chelsea Manning once again okay. going into prison right now. They're um, my
2: heroes. Yeah. I ask the question, I'll say that.
1: And I'm hearing uh, a lot of similarities with uh, you know people who were trying to expose these things from the '60s and the '70s. And uh, you know you have 50 years in the movement. I'd just like to get your opinion on what you think that this might look like in 10, 20, 50 years, especially concerning uh, Snowden, Assange, and Manning.
2: It's my personal opinion that Chelsea Manning. Edward Snowden and Julian Assange are the heroes of our era. They knew that exposing what they knew the government to be doing was a tremendous contribution to the people and a tremendous contribution to the people's right to know. And the fact that they have been so viciously and illegally persecuted for revealing the truth is an an assault on our freedoms and an insult to the pretense that we live in a democracy. Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, and Edward Snowden are heroes. I personally admire them, and I cannot praise them highly Enough. We need to defend them, because in defending them, we are defending ourselves, and we are defending future generations. We need to struggle for their freedom, and we need more people like Chelsea Manning. We need more people like Edward Snowden. We need more people like Julian Assange. These are the heroes of our time. What do you think is going to happen if we don't? I mean, you're
1: saying that things have been got getting worse. Uh, you know, our freedom is being more restricted. You know.
2: My personal opinion is that we are already in a deeply historical crisis. And what we are seeing now, the troubling things we see, are only the beginning of what's to come. What remains unknown is what our reaction as the people of this society will be. With every moment of danger, there's an equal opportunity in that crisis moment. How it turns out depends upon what we, the people, do at that time.
0: All right, everyone, That's, that's what we have for today. Uh, we want to thank Ernesto for taking the time to, to talk with us. Much love and respect to him and his endeavors in getting his next book published.
1: But also a PSA, free Lennon Peltier, free Mumia, free Sean Swain, free Marius Mason, Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, all political prisoners. June 11th is International Day of Solidarity of Long-Term Anarchist Prisoners. On this day and all days, we support them because we ain't free till they are. And there you
0: have it. I'm Ernesto Morales. I'm Alex Yanish, And we We are are The reality Reality Dysfunction.